Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. You'll turn with me to Colossians 3. We're going to read verses 22. Okay to four one. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thanks, Tiffany. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I, before kids go to Elevate... Um, I'm going to hang out for just a minute because we prayed for students, uh, but one thing as um, refuge, we don't have a whole lot of like doctors and attorneys and, and uh, that types of the CEOs and things like that, but one thing that God has gifted us, lots of engineers, um, but the other thing that God has gifted us with uh, is uh, teachers. Um, so what I want you to do uh, if, and we were joking, teachers, for, uh, for if you're just a parent, um, summer break is over and fall, winter, and spring break has now begun this week, right? Um, but for students, that was kind of funny. I thought, I think that's funny and nobody else does. All right, uh, teachers, you begin, uh, man, you begin the work of ministry really uh, full gear tomorrow. So if you are a, an educator, a teacher, um, from preschool to high school to college to wherever you may be, homeschool, public school, private school, if you're an educator, would you, I'm not gonna have you stand, but I do want you to raise your hand and look around the room. And um, yeah, and all right. So uh, yeah, we can clap for them, but also we're gonna pray for them. Okay, um, and uh, if you have, and I'm going to tell you right now, this is a time to have a, a posture of prayer toward their teachers. Uh, this is not a time ever to see their teachers as an enemy or as, uh, or as against them. They are there to, to love and educate, uh, and they've been the brunt of all kinds of, all kinds of fire here the last couple of years. So would you join with me real quick, and we're going to pray for uh, our teachers uh, and, uh, and the teachers here locally. Jesus, thank you for teachers. They have a special calling. Um, I have yet to meet a teacher that got into this to, be get, to get rich. Um, they have a calling, and uh, they are on the front lines of ministry. Uh, regardless of the talking heads, regardless of what goes on in the TV and the politics and all of those things, teachers are in that classroom day in and day out, a lot of times with students, uh, among their, their students, students who are hurting, students who are hungry, students who are vulnerable, and everyone, oh man, especially seventh through 12th grade, as Jeremy already mentioned, who are just in going through a very tricky part of life. 
So I pray for our teachers at Refuge. Um, I pray that you would give them incredible strength and courage, endurance. Uh, help them to sleep really well tonight and tomorrow night. I know they'll sleep well the rest of the week. Uh, I pray that uh, you would give them a fresh vision uh, for what you have called them to, um, that they would be ministers of the gospel of grace, showing compassion and mercy and love to children, some children who may get it all the time, some children who may never be told no, and then some children who don't know what it is to be loved. And they have to go across that whole gamut with lawyers breathing down their neck oftentimes of what to say and not say and all that stuff. So I pray for immeasurable grace and mercy and courage and love uh, and peace for them. Thank you for our teachers. They are a gift to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right. Um, what do you do? What do you do? Now, in your mind, you probably went, that's, that can be a loaded question. Some of you are waiting for me to finish the question. Kind of feel like Michael Scott, right? Who, who do you think you are? Uh, what do you do? There, uh, I'm going to guess that most of us, most of you, probably immediately went to the thought of, what do I do to make money? Is that right? Most of us probably thought job. What do I do to make money? Or if you're younger and you're still a student, it was probably what am I studying right now to eventually go one day and make money? Uh, we are in our third week of going through the practices of mission. It flowed right out of doing the one anothering over the summer. Um, and we've talked about engaging in public faith. We've talked about gathering as the corporate body uh, for, for worship. And today we're going to talk about incorporating our faith and our work, our labor. And I love thinking about this and I love talking about this. Uh, to the point where it's hard to, like, I have a billion different things I want to talk about, and they all fall into this, and there's lots of nuance, and there's lots of understanding uh, that has to go into this. Um, it, it, this is something, like, incorporating our work and faith is something that I never really thought much about until I was reading a book. This is several, several years ago, this book that was making the rounds on discipleship. And every, it, was, it was huge on discipleship. And at the, toward the end of the book, the author made a comment about discipleship, and he said, you know, uh, this is, discipleship and ministry is what's really important. Your job and what you do, uh, that, that's important. So if you're like a bridge builder, that's important, but what's really important is discipleship and ministry. And at the time that I was reading this book was when the uh, westbound lanes of the Blanchett Bridge had been blown up and were being rebuilt. You guys remember that several years ago? And I thought, man, would I say to a guy working on that bridge, pouring concrete, doing measurements, putting in, uh, you know, putting the steel rods in, looking to see how much weight, would I say to him, would I want him to think, you know, this is, this is kind of important, but what's really important is discipleship. And I thought about how many people drive across that bridge. Thousands of cars. 
a day. And I thought about driving my family across that bridge. Whenever we have to drive the other way, right, St. Charles people, we have to drive across that river, and then we got to come back across that river. How do we, and I, and I thought, man, what a horribly false dichotomy. How about this? How about you build that bridge as unto the Lord? That would be much better. How about you see your job and your work as part of discipleship and not a separate dichotomy? When you're on that bridge, I want you to think about building that bridge to the glory of God. I don't want you to think about what I really should be doing right now is a Bible study. Right? Building that bridge is ministry. So what do you think, what, what comes to mind when you think of this idea of work or vocation or calling? Uh, our, pastor, our pastor in uh, Texas, when we were in seminary, he always used to ask this question all the time. He would say, I'd be curious to know how many of you have ever felt called into ministry? And this was a seminary town. This is Fort Worth, Texas, seminary town. So, you know, us students sitting up in the balcony way in the back here, we're like, it's us, it's us, right? Uh, and then he would go on to say, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called into ministry, all of you. And then we're like, so yes, yeah, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been called into ministry. And it's not just limited to like certain things. It is all of life. This is an all of life practice. And Refuge, I want to tell you something. You guys do amazing. You do amazing at this. I watch you minister to each other. I watch you look out for each other. That meal train, we've had a lot of meals this, uh, over this past couple of months, and you guys are filling it up every time. It's amazing. You do great at this. All right, so today we're going to look at work and faith. How do we incorporate our work and faith? And we're, to do it, we're going to look at the grand story of Scripture, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, and how does work get brought into that? So let's start with creation. Uh, the story of the Bible, the story told in Scripture, is the only ancient cosmology where work is actually part of the good design. Work is created good in Scripture. Now, you might be like, that's not the argument you think it is, right? Uh, no, actually it is. It is. Work was designed good. We were designed to be workers. Um, what we see in Genesis 2 is that God created the garden... And then he put us in the garden, he put mankind in the garden to work it and keep it, to cultivate it, that it would, as we see in Genesis 1, that it would bear fruit and multiply. We were called to join in as part of creation, that's part of who we are. We work, we labor, we labor well. We are image bearers of a God who is also a worker. We are participants. Different narratives uh, throughout the ancient world. This work and labor, when you think about it, has really been abused throughout history and in some ways continues to be in our day. Uh, and it's hard. It's lots of nuance, not only in our personal identity, uh, but there's lots of nuance there. Uh, there are a few narratives around the ancient world uh, that were often used to exploit workers. Ancient Egypt, there was a concept of the Imago Dei. Uh, the Pharaoh, the bright and morning star, was... He was 
the image of God. And then some close relatives around him were image bearers. But laborers and other peoples were created by lesser gods. So it wasn't like you could rise above your position. You were divinely ordained as a, as a laborer in the field. That's how you were created. The Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, man is created out of bloodshed, uh, and work is pretty much punishment. It's endless toils. The gods don't want to mow the lawn, and they don't want to do the harvest. They created mankind to do all the work for them, keep them fed, and keep things kind of neat. Even the ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, there were Greek aristocrats, and then there were lesser beings. Uh, Thales of Miletus, we quoted him before, the father of science or the father of philosophy, however you want to look at him. He was really the kind of the first one to look and say, we don't need gods to explain the world around us. We, we can explain the world by simple observation of who should be in charge and who should be making the decisions. He's the first humanist. And this is Thales' famous saying. He said, there are three attributes from which I am grateful to fortune, that I was born a human, not a beast, a man, not a woman, and a Greek, not a barbarian. Thales would not last on Twitter. <laughs> in the creation story, in Scripture, we're not only told that all people are created in, in God's image, but that the God in whose image we bear is a working God, that there's dirt under his fingernails. He is the king, but he's also the creator. He, he breathes life into his creation. He works in the mud. Jesus himself was a carpenter. And we see in this, the value of a person is not determined by their work or their income. We see that work itself is dignified, even in creation. One thing that we see throughout the ancient world and, and uh, Old and New Testament is the warning that um, wealth and earthly success are not evil, but they are dangerous because they can get us to believe that we are somehow more than we think we are. Work was created and designed good in the Bible. It was not a curse from the gods. It was made good, and it's a part of who we are. We are designed as workers, as laborers. Um, but our rebellion against God, Genesis 3, this was uh, the mistrust, and this caused our relationship with work to be, when God doled this out, that it was cursed with thorns. So no longer did it bear good fruit, it bore fruit with thorns. Our relationship with God had gone sour, our relationship with one another had gone sour, and our relationship with work had gone sour. Adam and Eve cultivated the ground in creation, it bore good fruit and multiplied. The first generation after that, Cain and Abel, if you know that story, uh, the, the fruit of their uh, labor, Cain wanted it for himself. It became about comparisonitis. Our relationship with work became less about the enjoyment of God and bearing fruit and multiplying and became more about selfish gain. And shoot, only a few chapters into the Bible, which is a couple thousand years, uh, but only a few chapters in, we see all of the technology. They had this new technology called bricks. They're still around. Pretty, pretty that's last, that's a lasting uh, invention. And uh, all of the labor and all of the technology became about building a city for man's glory for our achievement, for self-reliance, for self-protection. That's the story of Babel. 
So we have creation and rebellion, but let me ask you to reflect on this. What do you work toward? What do you work for? What is the motive of why you do what you do? Regardless of what you do, what's the motive for that? We are, uh, we're in the midst of getting one kid about to be done with college and another kid about to start, and I'm amazed, and I'm, I get pretty hyper aware of this, but I'm, pretty, I'm amazed at how often we look at career cho- choices and majors and all that stuff, and what's the question we ask, usually? It's usually about income. You can make a good living at this. And hear me, this is not unimportant. It's not unimportant. Um, or this, like, this idea of like, do what you love, which is also okay, but there's a couple things on that. Realize how privileged that is. Like, you don't see portion, you don't see anything in scripture of like, Abraham, do what you love. Chase your dreams, Abraham. Well, I guess technically, I guess technically he did, right? <laughs> All right. You know what I mean. Uh, that, that is a privilege. Do we take that seriously? Do we treat that as a privilege? Something to be stewarded well? Or is it a, is it a right? Um, the idea of doing what you love, as somebody said, do what you love and you'll never work a day again in your life or something like that. There was a meme about that, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said, do what you love and you will self-scrutinize and it will become torture and it'll never be good enough for the rest of your life. <laughs> you'll work harder. Um, work is complicated, and, and uh, I think all of this, the result of sin and how it affected our relationship with work, what God made good. Um, what we see in Scripture, work is not a uh, necessary evil. Uh, that's not, just not a biblical view. The idea of making enough money so you can just enjoy life, right? That's another, that's marketed to us over and over and over again, make enough money and then you can just enjoy life. Um, and uh, that's incredibly selfish and it demands and requires that everybody else has to produce something so that you can enjoy your life. So why do we work? Work was created good. It's been distorted by sin. Uh, we were designed to labor, produce fruit. Um, so let's get into our passage this morning for how work can be redeemed. What does it look like redeemed? Paul says this in uh, Colossians. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, it will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me first address uh, our need to get language and historical context straight. If you're looking at this in the Pew Bibles, if you look at that, it will say slaves obey your masters in everything. Um, when we think slaves and masters, immediately our minds go to, probably, go to American antebellum slavery, which is one of the gravest and darkest atrocities in all of human history. This verse was actually taken out of its context in Paul. Verse 4.1 was removed, and it was given as part of the slave Bible 
that was used to tell slaves to be obedient to their masters. Um, the church's participation in this at whatever level, in whatever area, uh, for the American church uh, is disgusting and vile. Uh, it needs to be not only repented of, it needs to be repudiated often and needs to be renounced, okay? Um, the slave Bible would actually, they would also take out Jesus' messages of deliverance and hope. It would take out Exodus. It would take out a lot of this stuff and it would abuse the words of Paul. Um, and uh, again, we need to repent for the church's passive acceptance at minimum and at some points the, per the church's propagation of this uh, horrific and vile practice. Let me say that. Okay, that's a lot to qualify over here. And then say, that's not what's being said here. The closest we have here, this is an employee and employer relationship. All right, now, if you want to talk about economic practices of the first century and how the economy was set up and what is a bond servant and what is that and the justifications for that, we can talk about that some other time. The best relationship to our current day that Paul is talking about here is employer and employee. Everybody okay with that? All right, we'll break down the other things some other time, but for now, we're gonna be okay with that moving forward. Um, what does it mean, what does following Jesus mean for the worker in our day? And not just what you do to make money. What does it mean for our work and for our labor? Whether you're a parent, a student, a volunteer, or an employee, or an employer. Following Jesus should give us a different lens for the work that we do. Whatever it may be, whether it's parenting, or sales, or studying, or teaching, or social work, or programming, or engineering, Paul says that we are to work as if we were working for God himself. So we steward our successes and our failures without letting it get to our heads when we're successful, without it completely destroying us if we don't get that promotion, if we don't move forward. When we see it with this lens, it wars against our temptation to think that we're better than others because of our, where we're at on the corporate ladder. Or that we're lower than others because their salary is higher than us or because they're higher on the org chart. It wars against us seeing our jobs as meaningless, that we're just working for the weekend. It allows us to serve others and the common good in whatever we're doing. Seeing that there's always more at work than just our job description or meeting the minimum requirements or getting more money. Tim Keller summarizes this well when he essentially says that when we see everything that we do as working ultimately for God, who sees and knows everything, it makes the most high-pressure jobs bearable, and it gives meaning to even the most mundane tasks. So I want to give three perspectives that following Jesus should help us develop when it comes to work. First, work gives us a new vision for how God cares for the world around us. If we see work, if you look and look at your work as just something for our ends, then we have to we ha is it, if it's just for my income, if it's just for my provision, then we have, to see, we have to see others as also participating in that. 
whether coworkers or clients, they, are, they exist to meet our ends. We use others for our satisfaction, which is largely the way of the world, but the world does it with much better marketing. When we see how God uses work and labor and laws and followers of Jesus in every field to accomplish, what he does is he uses us to accomplish actually a great deal of care and compassion and help for the world. And we can see this differently. Remember when the world shut down for the pandemic? You guys remember that? (laughs) Who were the essential workers? Wasn't the CEOs. Yeah, nurses, service industry, grocery clerks, security. Um, We saw how critical these jobs became. Truck drivers, I remember remember the, the first picture of the truck driver making a delivery of the first vaccines. When factories in other countries shut down because of sickness, all of a sudden those workers became really important because it may have been the smallest part that affected the end product 20 processes down the row. Work and economy, they are tricky. There's a lot of different views on what's best. But work and labor, this is how the world gets fed. This is how we eat. It's how we have structures. The second thing, when we see our work as unto God, we should do it well. As one person said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. God is interested in good craftsmanship. If you're a follower of Jesus, we ought to do good work. Followers of Jesus ought to be the last people looking to cut corners or just get the highest profits. We should do good work. Our our calling is so much higher than just a paycheck. And then finally, work that pleases God is work that helps human flourishing. Our motive for what we do goes to demonstrate God's justice, his goodness, and his care for the world around us. There's going to be a lot of differing views on what that looks like. But for the follower of Jesus, we have to wrestle out what is ultimately good. What does God give that is ultimately good for all humanity, not just me? And where do we have guidance on what is good for all humanity? That has to come from God itself, himself. No human has the capability to decide what is good for all humanity. Our perspective is way, way too limited. And we can't possibly think that we would know that. How many times have we been wrong? What are the laws of unintended consequences? Is this good for all humanity? This changed the world. There's also a whole lot of laws of of unintended consequences. Changing the world is a 20th century phenomenon. We are called to steward well. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to steward well the gifts and the position and, 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 the, and the income and the position that you have that God has given you. Steward it well, to bear the image of God well, even and especially through our work. So, the short end for all of that is in your work, regardless of your position, regardless of your paycheck, regardless of where you are, you can serve. Martin Luther King once said, every man can be great because every man can serve. Labor well, serve well, 
regardless of your position, whether you're rising on the corporate ladder, whether you're just starting off, whether you're doing a temp job over the summer, work well. Mom and pop businesses, corporate positions, stay at home parenting, serve God and serve others. Make your good work about serving those around you, your bosses, your clients, your board members, the custodial staff, the administrators, the call center reps, the teachers, the students, your kids. What does it look like for you and for me to work as unto the Lord, to see more going on than what's right in front of my face? And the God who sees and knows all works through all. Now, we have work is created good. Our rebellion has given us an awkward relationship with labor and with work. In redemption, we see that work has a greater purpose and meaning than what we can see directly in front of us but then we have this glorious resurrection, the glorious restoration. What does that say ultimately about our labor? What does the resurrection of Jesus say about our labor? J.R. Tolkien uh, wrote uh, Lord of the Rings. You guys have heard of this book? All right. He spent all this time, think about this, he spent all this time developing this story, Lord of the Rings. And he gets into Middle Earth, and you have different lands, and you have different creatures, and they have different backstories, and they're all coming from different angles, and different this, and different that. And he got right to the middle of it, and he got writer's block. He got frustrated. Can you imagine? Like, I never, I never even thought about how many worlds he had created, and then get there and go, I have to wrap this up. <laughs> how do I bring all of this back together? And it got overwhelming. And so in the midst of that, then, and also World War II hit, and that weighed heavy on him. And um, so he was asked to write a short story. And he wrote, uh, in, he wrote a short story in which he kind of fleshed out some of his own frustration. The story is called Leaf by Niggle. By, by Niggle. The story was about a painter, Niggle. Niggle means piddling around inefficient labor. That's from the English dictionary. And Niggle saw his life's goal was to paint this vision he had of a tree. And behind this tree was a stream and then wooded mountains where creatures lived. And you can kind of pick up where Tolkien was going with this, right? He saw this vision that he had for his life's work. And he was stuck. And he labored and he kept laboring, but he was distracted by the needs of his neighbors and in caring for them and in taking care of his neighbor parish, especially. Eventually, he got sick and he died. And, and all he was able to finish of this beautiful tree, all he was able to finish was a leaf. But upon arriving in eternity, he sees there in heaven this vision, his tree. When he arrives in eternity, he sees his tree. And behind his tree, he sees the stream. And behind the stream, into the woods. And it was there in ultimate reality, in the fullness of reality, that his vision was complete and full. And it was said that was a comfort to Tolkien, that if he never finished his work, that one day all things would ultimately have their completion. He did finish it, and if you're not aware, it did pretty well. 
For the follower of Jesus, God gives us a vision for what the world should and could be. What the world was designed to to look like. For what our labor could and should accomplish as followers of Jesus, as participants in God's kingdom. He has painted a picture of fullness, a vision of our life's work in this kingdom that we should be laboring toward. And in our lives, we may only get one leaf finished. One life impacted. One neighbor given food or cared for or or shown compassion. But there is a tree. We promised in the resurrection of Jesus Jesus that this work will not be left undone. It will be completed, there will be justice, there will be an end to poverty, there will be a city without walls of self-protection, without war, without corruption. And in this knowledge of the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection, we are saved from both the despair of annihilation and the naivety of utopianism. We labor well, knowing that ultimately one day it will be completed. I went back and typed this this morning and I, this is Keller, Tim Keller, uh, Every Good Endeavor is a phenomenal book. This is the first place I heard of the story by Tolkien of Leaf by Niggle, and it is a beautiful, powerful story, and I'm realizing as I'm going through that I didn't credit Keller. So you can pretty much credit Tim Keller for almost anything I say, but especially here. Follower of Jesus, we do not believe that we're killing time until we get to go to heaven. You're not just wasting time. Your work is important. What you do is important. Nor do we believe, followers of Jesus, that we are the saviors of the world. We have a savior. We're not the savior. We do believe that what Jesus promised and has already fulfilled in his resurrection, that one day it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And so we labor whatever you do toward that end. I want to finish with one of my favorite quotes uh, from Russell Moore, and then, and then I'll give you our practice for this week. Russell Moore says this. I love this about the hope of the resurrection. If the kingdom of God is what Jesus says it is, then that means that what matters isn't just what we neatly classify as spiritual, right? Discipleship and labor, they are both part of who we are designed to be. What matters isn't just what we neatly classify as spiritual. The natural world around us isn't just a temporary environment. It's part of our future inheritance in Christ. The underemployed hotel maid, we walk past silently in the hallway, aren't just potential objects of our charity. They are potential queens of the cosmos. Our jobs, whatever they might be, they are not accidental. The things that we do to serve in our local churches aren't random. God is designing your life individually and congregationally as internships for the eschaton. We are learning in little things how to be put in charge of great things. Your work, your service, your encouragement, your compassion, your care, it matters. And one day it will be made whole. 
So here's your practice for this week. Look at your job. Look at your work. Look at where you spend the most of your time. And you may have, look at your job and maybe even like look at your chores. Look at your errands. Look at the things that you do throughout the day. What does it mean? What does it look like? And all of these, from the mundane, from the project deadline that has to be finished, to the first day of school, to mowing the yard, to picking up after yourself, to hanging up the towels off the freaking floor. Sorry. Uh, what does it look like to do that as unto the Lord? What does it help you to say that you might otherwise be fearful to say? What does it help you what does it allow you to put aside that you might not otherwise be able to put aside? How does it change or affect what you are pursuing with your work or with your education or with your investments? Where does this bring meaning and joy and hope even in the mundane? And then how does this affect how you see others and their labor? We had a hailstorm hit, I think it was back in April, right? And uh, I think so. And I think like the, our corner of the neighborhood got hammered, like almost baseball size hail. And so right now, a lot of people, and of course, when storms hit in the spring, roof repairs get made in the summer. And right now, God bless them, man, some of the most important people in the world are up on these roofs replacing shingles. In, 95 plus degree temperatures. We may be tempted to look down on them in the economy of things, but I promise you, you don't care as much about a CEO missing a couple things if this guy is on your roof putting new shingles on and you want him to do his job to the glory of God. How does this affect how we see others in their labor? The person who answers the phone the checkout clerk, the roofers. Oh, those blessed human beings that go out and collect grocery carts. Oh, bless and do not curse. Help those people, love them well. All right, let's pray. Jesus, you have given us more meaning and purpose in our days than I think we oftentimes see. Following you and trusting you is so much more than just one day I get to go to heaven. It is seeing the fullness of the reality of how you designed the world to be even now. In the smallest details. To make known your glory in how we care for and do even the smallest tasks. There is no task below a follower of Jesus. There is nothing menial. There is nothing that doesn't matter. So I pray that we would work well, that, man, you would explode our eyesight to see you at work all around us. that this would give us a deeper and more rich trust in you uh, and also just to be an encouragement to the world around us, to love well and labor well. 
Add your blessing to all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.